Hey, folks. It's Progressive News Network, PNN. I'm Brooke Hines, and it's December 27, 2020. And uh, it's been a funky week. It's funky past uh, post-holiday, and I thought we might... um, Enjoy the funkiness together. So tonight, we've got Rick Spizak joining us for an end-of-the-year chat. We have a list of uh, uh, worldwide stories to share with you guys. And Janine Moloff will join us at 8.30 to talk about uh, how centrist faux civility will screw everyone. And I'm really excited about that because that's one of the things that I just absolutely um, have at the top of my list for uh, what to look for in early, at least in early 2020. Um, so, uh, so you know, the end of the year, and we just did all of our uh, Christmas holiday stuff, and we're getting ready to go into New Year's Eve. Um, everybody needs to celebrate in a in a safe manner i hope you know um uh but celebrate nonetheless because we want to uh usher out 2020 in a appropriate manner um however that works for you guys what my mother-in-law said to do she said i don't know where this custom comes from i don't remember exactly uh Uh, exactly how it went, but you're supposed to open up your windows and doors in your house to shoo out the old, old year and uh, bring in the new year. So I will be on, uh, on the 31st, I will be definitely opening up all of our windows. At least if I open the doors, the dogs will escape. So we're just going to open the windows and we're going to hope for the best that 2020 gets out of here. But now what happens in 2021? What's that going to be like? So I thought we might talk about the funkiness that we're in and how that might start playing out in 2021. So I got this great new, this great new music right here. And I'm loving it. And I'm loving it. That's that's the mood. That is the mood that absolutely the mood that I'm in. You know what? That's a mood that uh, that everyone should should welcome. Um, the funk. We all got the funk. And you know, right now it's Sunday, and the omnibus spending bill has not been approved that means that on tuesday the government is going to shut down during a pandemic uh this is this is certainly not good but there's also a lot of other things that happen uh if nothing changes on monday now nancy pelosi is supposed to call everyone back on monday and get serious about this this bill Remember, Trump sent it back um, because he said $600 checks were too little. He wants to see $2,000 checks. And um, uh, the bill isn't just about survival checks. It's about 
It, there's all kinds of military spending in it. It's the government spending. It's uh, it's it, it's soup to nuts. It's all kinds of pork. Uh, so they wrote a separate they wrote a separate two page simple bill for the two thousand dollars. And they might be introducing that separately. It might just uh, ride along with the with the larger bill. We will see what Nancy Pelosi decides to do with that um, as we uh, as Monday progresses. But what has happened up until now is that Nancy Pelosi is using this uh, this survival money. You know, you've got all of these people out in in the country. A lot have been out of work since March. You know, people that uh, work in front of other people, um, uh, people whose uh, professions rely on uh, face-to-face kinds of interactions or groups of people uh, coming together. So like musicians and bars and restaurants and stuff like that. These are the people who have been hit really, really hard, uh, and and I mean economically because the people who have really been hit hard are the people who've gotten sick, and the people who are caring for sick people are frontline, you know, nurses and doctors and people in um, hospital settings. So, you know, we got we got a lot to clean up. We got a lot. We got a lot of fixing to do, and I wanted to just spend a moment on trying to get our head around what's going to happen tomorrow. So Nancy Pelosi, and I think everybody needs to understand this, and I think it's been lost in in the rhetoric or the discourse around this, Nancy Pelosi is using the omnibus spending bill and the uh, um, survival checks as leverage. She thinks that this is going to somehow impact the uh, two Senate races in Georgia, you know, there's a special election going on in Georgia. There's two Senate seats, the Senate, right, you know, whether or not the Democrats or the Republicans control the Senate um, rides on what happens in Georgia on January 5, which isn't that far away. Now, her calculus here is, is that all of this brinksmanship with the spending bill is going to reflect badly on Mitch McConnell and nobody else. So, uh, well, in the GOP in, in general, and and that that will translate into Georgians statewide voting for Warnock and Ossoff for for the Senate and getting rid of uh, Loeffler and uh, uh, the other guy. What is his name? It escapes me. Um, I don't know if that calculus is actually um, fair. I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know if Georgians are uh, en masse statewide looking at what's going on with uh, with this bill, with the spending bill, and uh, putting that into whether or not they're going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat for the Senate. Uh, I, I 
that's that's not clear to me at all. It could backfire immensely, and it's definitely backfiring in terms of uh, people who are suffering, who you know don't have don't have work and don't have money, and really really need some sort of relief. You know, we're the only we're the only country, uh, the, the only major country that hasn't. Um, it's, it, the, the United States is the only advanced democracy to not give direct and substantial cash relief to its citizens during this pandemic. Um, the only one. So countries like Japan have uh, uh, made sure that, that wages are uh, uh, almost 100% of, you know, if you're out of work because of the pandemic, they have direct payments that make sure your wages are still provided to you almost to 100%. Uh, a lot of countries, you know, bump that down. You know, there's, there's people who are making sure you get 90% of your wages, 85%, 80 70%. Uh, United States is zero, zilch, nothing. Uh, we've, we've just been, you know, cut off, essentially. And... Time is running out and people are getting desperate. So on Christmas Day, you know, we saw this bizarre, uh, what looks to be a suicide in uh, downtown Nashville on 2nd Avenue, uh, where someone parked their RV with a lot of explosives, ran, then ran a uh a recording that said, please leave the area. This is, you know, I'm getting ready to blow it up essentially. So he, he gave a, uh, um, a heads up to everyone and the police were on the scene because they were responding to a report of gunshots fired. So there's some speculation as to whether the person who did this, uh, and it looks like, a, it looks like a suicide attack it looks like he uh, might have been the one to shoot a gun off to attract the police. Uh, it looks like he didn't want to hurt other people. And there's some discussion about whether, you know, he, he was um, protesting that, that the suicide bombing was a protest about uh, 5G. Uh, that's, that was the, the latest thing that I've, that I've read. Uh, point is that we don't know, and the the further point is is that uh, people are desperate. There's a um, Sunrise Movement tweeted out uh, a couple days ago that this is the Sunrise Movement. This is the official uh, account for Sunrise Movement. They tweeted out, "Young people are living paycheck to paycheck." More of us are contemplating suicide than ever before. And the weight of debt hangs on so many of our necks because we did what society told us to do, go to school. Joe Biden has the power to cancel student debt. Uh, not to use it is immoral. And I was really shocked to see uh Sunrise Movement actually using the same language that I've been using for a while in terms of uh, the, the fact that people are literally contemplating suicide. Now that when I started seeing that in 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 my circles behind the scenes, 
You know, I don't see people, you know, tweeting that out. I see people talking about that behind the scenes. I see, you know, people commiserating and, um, you know, trying to figure out what their, what their next move is and, you know, their backs are against a wall. Uh, that, is, that is extreme despair. That is despair all, the, despair all the way to the wall. You know, you cannot go any further when people start, you know, talking about um, ending their lives because they are going to be homeless. They have no job prospects. They can't take care of themselves. And it's the middle of the winter in a pandemic. Um, so this is dire, you know, this isn't, this isn't, and it's also not just me, you know, uh, you know talking about, talking about this kind of anomie, you know, this is kind of, of ennui and despair. Uh, just absolutely gobsmacking that Sunrise Movement brought that up. And, you know, they brought it up in the context of Joe Biden as the new president has the power through executive order to cancel student debt. And he had made the promise of canceling some like I think it was like fifty thousand dollars of student debt, or up to fifty thousand dollars of student debt, and he started reneging on that this week. He started walking that back this week, um, and you also saw this this week. Um, I think this was on the twenty second. You also saw Biden in negotiations with um, he. He got involved in the negotiations on the survival checks on the on the relief bill, which is also the omnibus spending bill. He got involved in that, and um, played a decisive role in making sure the legislation was cut in half. So Joe Biden steps in and is like, uh, uh, while they were almost almost to the point of agreeing on on a a package that is twice the size of what it is now he he rolled it back and um uh here's here's uh here's what i think this is the new york times new york times says with republican and democratic leaders in the house and senate uh, far apart on how much they were willing to accept in new pandemic spending, Mr. Biden on December 2 threw his support behind the $900 billion plan being pushed by the centrist group. That's the uh, problem solver group. The total was less than half of the $2 trillion that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had been insisting on. Now, what's, what's really interesting about this is what they say next. Uh, members of both parties said his intervention was constructive and gave Democrats confidence to pull back their demands. So the Democrats, Pelosi and Schumer, were were amenable to pulling back their demands and decided to, uh, with um, and uh, uh, with Biden's insistence here with with his him coming in and saying no let's do this let's he's going to endorse this other initiative they were like oh okay if if you say so 
then then that's what we're going to do. And this week, David Sirota wrote a piece, uh, Biden's austerity zealotry helped cut the stimulus bill in half. And what he uh, highlights here is that it was said when he did this, this is what Biden said, these are his own words, that, um, that this is a model for the challenging work ahead for our nation. So he comes into this negotiation, you know, with, the, with people in the United States absolutely suffering, not being able to um, uh, uh, pay rent. Uh, there, there's more hunger now than ever. People are using food banks more than they've ever used before. And he comes in and he, you know, cuts that cuts that in half. And that that's a model for going forward. Now you combine that with the uh, fact that the new White House Chief of Staff, or Deputy Chief of, Chief of Staff, was uh, is is now Bruce Reed, who was uh, on the, um, he was uh, one of the main guys on the Cat Food Commission, Simpson Bowles, to cut Social Security. So we're going in, even though 2020 was horrible. Now we're going into 2021 with an austerity administration that is looking for ways to, um, to cut costs. You know, after, after Trump opened the treasury and gave everything he could away and the uh, Republicans in the Senate and house uh, to a certain extent, uh, they just opened up the treasury for corporations and um, billionaires who have become even bigger billionaires during this during this pandemic. Now, now they're going to say when it's time to start helping uh, regular people that you know the cupboard is bare. They've even used that that language that the cupboard cupboard is going to be bare. Uh, you know, this is this is um, this doesn't look good as we sweep out 2020. It doesn't look that what we're like what we're sweeping in with 2021 is is preferable uh, to a certain extent. Um, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow with with Nancy Pelosi and um, trying to get this. Uh, this bill passed. What she did at first was uh, unanimous consent. So she put it up, and you know anybody could block the bill with the with the way she brought it to to the floor. So you can bring a bill to the floor either there's a number of different ways, but unanimous consent is one way that is the highest bar to pass, and you could also bring it to the floor with a simple majority vote. Uh, And people were hoping that she would bring it to the floor with a simple majority vote. And she chose not to. The reason why is because she thinks Nancy Pelosi thinks her calculus is that this is going to impact the, the race in Georgia. Uh, David Dayan writes in um, his last unsanitized of the year, 
uh, which has been a great, this has been a, a great series of articles that he's been doing at, at the prospect. Um, he writes, Mitch McConnell will be standing between Americans and an extra $1,400 of survival money on Christmas week during a raging pandemic with two of his incumbents up for reelection in Georgia on January 5. Uh, David Perdue, who is the, the guy, can, the senator that I, I couldn't remember his name, is literally running an ad in the state touting his support of the COVID relief bill that Trump trashed as a disgrace. If Purdue and Loeffler were getting hammered before, their party's roadblock to relief is even more conspicuous now. Even for low-information voters, that check might have gotten to them by Election Day, and it won't get there now. So this is, this is all of the, the, the scheming and stuff going on behind the scenes. While we're out here going, uh, the eviction moratorium is running out, you know, we, uh, our, our sick time is running out, the government's getting ready to shut down. That's the game that they're playing. Uh, and I was interested to read this because it was the first that, it was actually the first time that I had seen this particular um, calculation uh, provided. It, it's it's not, this this isn't something that uh, people are talking about so much on Twitter, you know, that uh, or in other places where you've got discourse. I don't see a lot of people putting this together as, as, as a play for the Senate. What I see are people putting this together as, holy shit, how are we going to live? You know, that's, that's what we're saying. Now, Maybe Joe Biden will get into office and, you know, after inauguration on January 20, maybe he'll get into office and there will be some sort of Joe Biden relief bill uh, or something that he does by executive order. But he keeps signaling that he's not going to do that. And like they said in um, in that uh, one piece the uh, David Sirota piece, is that the austerity approach is the model that he wants to use going forward. Um, that, doesn't, that just does not bode well for, uh, for what's, what's to come. I want to share with you a clip that it's right here. I want to share with you a, a clip because I think this Nancy Pelosi situation is is really interesting, and I think it's something that we need uh, to understand a little bit better. And here's a clip of David Dan on Katie Halper's YouTube show. And oh yeah, hold on, I've got to got to do this real quick. Another thing about post-holiday funk is that you're a little bit off of your game in terms of working your tech. I haven't sat at my computer for a full three days. Oh, my God. Okay, so here we go. We've got Katie Halper. She's set up this question for David Dan, and she wants to know pretty much what's going on. What is what is the deal with Nancy Pelosi? Why don't we... Um, 
why can't she get this the, the this bill passed? Why are people afraid of her? And what is the nature of her power as the Speaker of the House? David Dan's response, I think, is very interesting here. Again. by herself this year and she very much likes doing this giving people take it or leave it bills that bury the unintended consequences deep she got reelected for speaker in the caucus by voice vote can you kind of explain that to people who aren't as well right. so I'm, talking about two things. I'm talking about two things there i mean we just talked about the fact that there were no bills that passed right. this year and, and mostly that was because of the pandemic uh you remember that for months Pelosi resisted having proxy voting, like voting by, from home for members of the House, uh, which what that meant is that she was kind of all alone negotiating with Mitch McConnell, negotiating with Steve Mnuchin, and then bringing back these bills to her caucus and saying, here's what we got. Vote, you're voting for this on, on Tuesday, right? Uh, that, that's what she did for months and months on this thing. And, you know, uh, usually there's a regular order, there's a committee process, the committee marks up a bill, uh, it goes through the committee down to the floor, the, the speaker figures out what gets to the floor and what doesn't. That's not what happened. I mean, there, there was literally no input from any member of Congress except Nancy Pelosi for like six months, right? Uh, this is this So for the duration of the pandemic, Everything that has been going on on Capitol Hill has been Nancy Pelosi, uh, Steve Mnuchin, and Mitch McConnell. There's been no input. I and mean, she's, she's been running the show like some kind of monarch here. There's, there's been no input from uh, other uh, representatives, members of Congress, people, who, members of the House. No input from them. Things have not gone through committee. It's all been 100% Nancy Pelosi. She's been doing the negotiation. She's been controlling the information that people get. And she's been uh, uh, pretty much just telling people how to vote. This is what you got. Take it or leave it. And, and that's it. Now, in the midst of all of this, uh, we've been talking about the issue of forcing the vote on Medicare for all. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, people, can't, people can't see a doctor. We don't have a means to distribute the vaccine. We have no uh, uh, supply chain. There is, there is no reliable supply chain from a medical producer straight down to a patient or to a consumer because Americans do not have universal health care. Every other country on the planet has a plan for distribution and can do it, and it's not a big deal. But the United States can't, can't even get the vaccine to people because we don't have a universal health care model. If we had Medicare for all, it, we'd, we'd, we'd be able to do this no problem. You just distribute it to the health care providers, and then people who are already taken care of with their health care can, you know, then be, you know, queued up to receive the vaccine. But we can't do that because we have this insane for-profit model for 
providing money for essentially, and I've said this before, for essentially hooking people up to uh, like ATM machines to the healthcare industry. You know, they, they hold us hostage. You know, if, if you would like your loved one to live, we're going to need a credit card number. Like that's essentially what the deal is. So we've been, uh, and we've been talking about on this show, uh, the situation with the with the force of vote, and this is something that uh, the people who have taken the lead on this have been um, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, and uh, you know, of course, Jimmy Dore's been in the mix. Uh, there's there's been a lot of um, people in um in in left media getting behind force the vote but it's not been it's not been a hundred percent there's a lot of people and I was surprised to see the this the 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 kinds of people who have been very vocal about oh no it's not the time you know we we uh, next pandemic or whatever you know don't don't push it now you can't you can't get anything done by 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 pushing something, uh, I guess they think that the best way to get what you want is to lure, maybe maybe you lure the members of Congress over to you with ice cream or something, and and then you get what you want. I don't know what their plan is, but um, but uh, but they're all lined up against this uh, this this. Um, a lot of people are, are lined up against forcing the vote. And just to be clear, the idea of forcing the vote is to hold up approving Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House in order to, you know, get what you want with the with the um, with the measure. Now, this is addressed again in the. Katie Helper interview. Let me find this piece. Because what's going on here is that members of Congress are weirdly afraid of Nancy Pelosi. And I've seen this personally uh, with um, uh, people that I work with that really should take a position uh, given given, uh, their, their records and the way that Nancy Pelosi has blocked the stuff that they want, people should be taking a lot more aggressive stance towards her, and they don't. So what is that about? What, why, why is that that way? And David Dan addresses this coming up right here. Okay, I think this is it. To her becoming, getting another term as speaker? Did you say anything? Did you try to do anything? I mean, this gets into sort of door territory, but, you know, they, they voted her in uh, with, with a voice vote. It was essentially a unanimous vote to give her another term as speaker. Uh, a very small group of House Democrats could have blocked her from becoming speaker again for another term. Uh, you know, I've seen AOC say none of us are ready to become speaker. Uh, there is a sense that Pelosi kind of rules the house like like Kim Jong-un rules North Korea. 
without like setting up a successor ever. Right. And, and so, like, that's the way that she can maintain power. But she, she holds this tremendous power that you don't even see that much uh, dissension from Pelosi. You don't like when, when AOC said, you know, we need new leadership, that was an event, right? Even though she said, yeah. but I can't do it yet. That was, that was like a main event because it never happens. There's never criticism of her from inside the caucus. There's this palpable fear from members of Congress that they don't want to get on Nancy Pelosi's bad side. So I wonder what that's about, actually. Like, what is it? What does Nancy Pelosi do? What does she hang over uh, folks that, that – um, what is she hanging over them that makes them so afraid to to you know have an opinion essentially this is basic dissent you know 80% of democrats support uh medicare for all 80% there there's there's no downside in terms of what our voters want so it doesn't make sense that that there would be so much power held by one person. And again, this one person has been doing all of the negotiating for six months with Mnuchin and McConnell. You know, she did all of that for six months, by the way. And Joe Biden saunters in at the last minute and cuts it all in half, cuts it in half. You know, doesn't even try to shave off 20 percent, you know, something like that. It would seem almost reasonable. He cut it in more than in half because it was two trillion, trillion, and now it's nine hundred billion. It's just, it's just insane. Um, and one other thing too. Let's see, what do I have here? Um, this I think is important. Brianna Joy Gray was on the Amped Up podcast with Ryan Knight, and I think she made a very good point about um, Nancy Pelosi and everything that's going on right now. Uh, there's a lot of disrespect for progressives. If you look at how many votes that um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren got together, uh, you don't see those votes being represented in this, uh, this new administration. And so I think that, I think that she's right on that we need to call this out and we, we need to, um, to make some noise about this because essentially this is being disrespected. So this is, this is, <laughs> but there's very, you know, it's hard to imagine what more he could do to disrespect progressives you know, who comprise 30 to 40% of the Democratic Party, while at the same time he's made all sorts of overtures to Republicans, right? Cindy McCain on the transition team, talking about Meg Whitman for for Secretary of Commerce. You know, these kind of overtures don't go unnoticed by progressives. So if the question is, you know, what should progressives do about it? We did everything right in 2016. We did everything they told us to do in terms of holding our notes. In, in 2020, and it hasn't made a lick of difference to the Democratic establishment. So I think that's really fair to say 
let's see what we, we tried working with carrots. Let's see what happens if we work with sticks and what happens. And I think that that is a great idea. We've done the carrots. Let's, let's bring the sticks. And that is what force the vote is, is about. Um, and, you know, she said that, that we all held our nose and, and, and voted for Biden. So, you know, we played along and, and, and so what do you get? What do you get out of that? Um, remember when here's here's a here's a tweet that I liked a lot. Remember when people insisted voting for Biden was harm reduction? Uh, this month, he's shown his disdain for defunding police, legalizing marijuana. He walked back his promise to cancel student debt and said kids in cages are here to stay and actively pushed to lower direct payments. Uh, if this is harm reduction, what exactly is the harm being reduced? You know, and uh, this is uh, at Black 22 or Black 24 Boy. Uh, and uh, it has almost 40,000 likes. <laughs> so a lot of people agree with this, that, you know, we voted for this person for harm reduction, and uh, he's not even in office yet, and he's walked back uh, the uh, it, it, having it, it, reforms having to do with immigration. He's walked back reforms having to do with uh, student debt. He's walked back reforms for uh, the police. He's and he's walked back uh, uh, legalizing marijuana and then worked directly interfering with the negotiations in Congress when members of Congress can't even uh, get in on the discussion. It, when it's just Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and Steve Mnuchin, uh, Joe Biden gets access in it and and says let's cut this in more than in half let's let's shave 60% off of this and and go with that this is you would think that members of congress would be incensed you would think that they would be clamoring to be heard at this point and what i'm seeing is is a uh, um the members of Congress that are already in, they're the ones that are afraid, which tells me that there's something that happens with Nancy Pelosi. Like she comes down on people once you are actually in office. There was a, there was a good clip and I don't think I have it here, but there was a good clip of um, Corey Bush and if we are willing to Jamal, um, uh, let me see if I can find it really quick. Here it is. It's uh, Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush on CNN Politics with uh, Dana Bash. And they're talking about possibly withholding their vote for Nancy Pelosi. So let's have, let's have a listen to this real quick. And real quick, before I let you both go, uh, something looking ahead at that you're both going to have to vote on, which is, uh, the Speaker of the House, Congresswoman-elect Bush, will you vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker? <laughs> what I'm going to do is make sure that the voices of the people of St. Louis are heard and that we have what we need. And so uh, you'll find out then. That's not it yet. I'm working with my community. That, I'm working with my community. Okay. And Congressman-elect Bowman, will you vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker? 
So you will find out when my vote is tallied uh, and, again, organizing with our community to figure out what's best. Uh, I'm just curious, why, what does that mean? When you said organizing with our community, I mean, what do you want to hear from them real quick in order to make your decision on whether Don't you love how Dana Bash is uh, confused about this whole organizing with your community thing? And she's confused about, uh, you know, having to represent the uh, people, the constituents and the voters for uh, Bowman and, and Corey Bush, the look on her face is just priceless here. She doesn't understand, like, what do you mean talking to voters? What do you mean constituents? Here, continuing. Pelosi should be the speaker. So you know, for I think me, that... go, go ahead, Corey. Go, Jamal. No, um, for well, me, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, we're, we're, all, we're almost out of time, actually. So just just give me a 10-second answer. We got to bring H.R. 40 to the floor for a vote. We need reparations for the African-American okay. community. We need a federal jobs guarantee. We need Medicare Thank for all. You. So Jamal Bowman, what you heard him say there at the end of this clip is that he has a slate of issues that he wants to see brought to the floor. And so what he's doing, what I think you can infer from that, is what he's doing is he's putting these in front of uh, um, Nancy Pelosi and saying, I want to vote on these particular issues. This is what I was elected on. I was elected based on these particular issues. And so I want to see a vote on these. Now, it's only going to take, as, as has been pointed out over and over again, it's only going to take... Um, 15, I think, 15 votes to hold up approval of Nancy Pelosi for uh, for the Speaker of the House. And you've got four, you have four members already of the squad. And then you've got 100 members in the, prog- the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, and then you add the new progressives coming in. You know, it, it, it's slim. It's slim. They could they could hold this up. They could you know use some of the power that is granted to you as a member of Congress. When the Constitution was set up, it was not set up for Nancy Pelosi to negotiate uh, everything for a year almost um, with Steve Mnuchin and. Mitch McConnell. That's not the way things were set up. Um, this is this is a this is highly irregular, and I'm surprised that more people aren't talking about this. And it's the reason why I shared the the clip from David Dayan is that he's the only person I've seen uh, writing about how how what a giant power grab uh, and, and what has been going on with Nancy Pelosi. So, uh, you know, all of that, all of that is, uh, is not ideal. You know, that is, is not how we want Congress to work. Okay. I'm going to take a short break and we will be right back.
for you. Um, 2020 sucked really bad. And I think we all understand that. But um, the, the, the worst thing you were going to see all year is Wonder Woman 84. And I watched it this weekend. Uh, and on the line, I have uh, someone who has also watched Wonder Woman. And I think shares some of my uh, concerns with with the movie. Um, caller? Hi there. Hi there. So we talked on Twitter about uh, about this particular movie, and I want to try to not give any spoilers for people. Okay. All right. There isn't, there's, not that I care that much, but there's a, um, I think there's, there, there's an overriding problem with the movie that that we can talk about without providing any spoilers. And the first thing minor that, spoilers maybe minor my, not, minor not, not major not major. Well, one of the things is that the movie premiered and was uh, was streamed on HBO Max. Uh, so it was something that was available pretty much for free. It wasn't something that you had to super seek out. You know, it's kind of pushed in front of you. And one of the things that was uh, highlighted in the movie was uh, shooting missiles in, around in the Middle East. And that just so happened that while we were watching that, actual missiles were being fired in the, at the Gaza Strip. And so uh, I saw Will Menneker tweet. He was live tweeting uh, as he watched the movie, and he said, I used to half-jokingly believe that all superhero movies were at some level directly controlled, written, and produced by some team of demons at Langley, but after <laughs> WW84, I believe this with absolute conviction. <laughs> so what do you, th- yeah, what do you think you of that take? Well, yeah, I, I agree with Will, and I think um, you know I wasn't aware I wasn't aware right at the moment of the attacks in Gaza either. Apparently, I think Israel was carrying out uh, heavy bombing uh, in Gaza and Syria, uh, which mm-hmm. you know it, anytime they do something, um, you know I, I think the U.S. is giving a tacit thumbs up, so uh, or they wouldn't be doing it. So I, I assume everyone was aware. And yeah, I'm with Will. It makes you feel like a you know like a little bit of a paranoid to say, oh, that, you know, the CIA is involved in uh, studio movies. And 
Hey, maybe, maybe not, but uh, you know, maybe somebody whispered in somebody's ear because this this movie, if, and, and no spoilers, uh, or no major spoilers, but I mean, you've got kind of you know the the DNC bullet points for you know the the past season kind of laid out. You've got a a, a sort of Trumpian villain who is a you know an entrepreneur type guy who gets uh, let's just say he comes by a. a, a an extreme power that he has. And all of a sudden, um, you know, people are, uh, uh, people are, are, uh, uh, are making their, I guess, uh, their explicit wishes come true. I think that's, that's not too much of a spoiler. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's some, there's definitely some, uh, some middle Eastern, uh, I think, uh, disparagement there. Cause there's not one, I think, but two middle Eastern characters that do something bad. Uh, one mm-hmm. of them, uh, one person uh, deprives a bunch of people of water, uh, which is a really weird thing to have happen. I, I don't know what the basis for that is. Uh, and then, the, uh, yeah, there was a lot. That's the Golan Heights. That's it. That's the, okay. the depriving of water has been a big Golan Heights uh, thing between Israel and Egypt. Okay. Yeah. Because I think, the, and again, I hope this doesn't give too much away. The character's wish was to have all his ancestral lands back. Uh, and there's some uh, there is some wish fulfillment that occurs one way or the other in the movie, and that causes all kinds of people to basically be dying of starvation. There's also some good old commie bashing uh, because uh, through through magic uh, the U.S. Uh, sprouts extra nuclear missiles, which causes the Soviet Union at the time we're told to say to say they're just going to attack. We've got more missiles, so they're just going to launch. And then an American character says, "Well, we'd do no less." Like, you know, if they if they produce more missiles close to us, we'd just attack. And, of course, that's just what you do, because that's a perfectly sane uh, response is to just uh, launch a nuclear attack on people. There's just a lot. What bothered me, if I can say real quick, and I know you've got limited time mm-hmm. on your show, but what bothered me, uh, and, and again, I, I think this doesn't give away uh, too much, but there's a mantra that comes up uh, in this movie that uh, that people need to stop wishing for things. Let's just say that that occurs, and we have our heroic character uh, basically asking everyone to, quote, revoke your wish. And think about that for a minute. So the, all over the world, the rabble you know, are, are, are making wishes, and this is problematic. I, again, I hope that doesn't spoil anything. I won't, I won't say how it comes out or uh, what goes on with, a, with all of that. But the idea is stop wishing for things poor people, regular people. If you do, you're just going to screw it up. All you're going to ask for is selfish, greedy, destructive stuff. And the solution, of course, is and, and this is definitely not a spoiler, is Wonder Woman, who I love. Mm-hmm. I love the character, uh, the way Gal Gadot has embodied her. And I found out it is Gadot. You would think maybe Godot, but it's not. It's Gadot. I think oh. she's embodied that character uh, wonderfully. She was a fun fish-out-of-water character in the flawed first movie. Um, but, uh, and again, this is in the trailers. Uh, she ends up dressing up in this golden angel armor complete with wings. And this is the answer. The, uh, the golden winged demigoddess from a magical island uh, can take care of things, but you, what you dumb people have to stop doing is wanting anything. And, and to me, they couldn't have screamed any louder, better things aren't possible. And it was a Christmas movie, uh, Brooke. It was a, <laughs> it was a Christmas movie. <laughs> right. And there's all this, you know, Christmas, you know, scenery and, you know, those feel good, you know, sleigh bells and trees and all that stuff that you, you know, expect in a Christmas movie. And the message is stop wishing for things. 
That's not possible. Let the experts handle it. And I don't think you have to stretch very hard or be overly paranoid to see that every message in that movie and the dynamics of how everything worked was a, a neoliberal dream brought to life. You know, uh, shut up. Let the pros do it. The worst thing you could possibly do is want better or want anything big. That'll just ruin the entire world in literally, you know, uh, half an act. <laughs> and the only hope that you have to be saved from a, you know, a Trump-like rich white guy is for, a, you know, this beautiful expert to come sailing in from foreign lands and take care of everything. And, and I think it's more insidious what you mentioned about the missiles. It's a strange time to launch a movie. It's a really never a normal time to launch a movie with all those themes. And it did kind of effectively blot out some of the landscape while Israel was apparently doing some of the most violent uh, attacks that they've done in quite a while. Um, you know, I, I, I had to be told there was heavy bombing in Gaza and that they were in Syria too, apparently. So, and we're always involved in that. We're always talking to them. Um, so it was really strange message. Don't forget the Russians are bad. Don't forget people in the Middle East are greedy and selfish and hateful. Uh, and don't, don't wish for things. I thought it was a really strange set of themes and messages for a Christmas movie. <laughs> it, it was to me, profoundly anti-populist. <clears throat> it, yes. was, it was profoundly 100%. because it leveled up. It said it said to the viewer that uh, that that the mundane wishes that that the rabble would have that is comes from a a a place of of, of greed and evil that and is ignorance. that is in, it, that is equal to Trump and the the, the character. Um, Pedro, what's what's his name? Who does the uh, who was the uh, actor? Uh, is it Isaacson? It's the guy who plays the Mandalorian with his mask off, and he's wonderful. I love that guy. He I love him. Very I love good. Gal Gadot. The whole There's, cast is just stuffed with fantastic actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's over over brimming with fantastic uh, talent. Um, and so the plot really threw me for a loop, and it just got more and more so as I sat there. So I think Will's got a point. You know, it's really odd to come out with this this crazy Christmas time Christmas Christmas time message. Don't don't wish for things because you really aren't equipped. You don't know what the results will be if people just start getting what they want. And mm -hmm. and in my mind, maybe because of my framing, it was like screaming, you know, this is this is Medicare for all or something like that or a Green New Deal or you know, erasing student debt. If you want something big, that's just greedy and selfish and it's going to lead to chaos. Shut up and let the golden, you know, the golden angel from the magical land come in and take care of it uh, without you, you know, against, against what, you know, your normal impulses would be as a dumb, you know, uh, you know, working person or a, you know, a, a non-elite. And I, I don't think it takes a lot of stretching or political framing to, see that that's what they were saying, because that's what they were saying. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that you wish for in a Wonder Woman movie is a strong feminist message. And I was right. very aware of what they were doing with Kristen Wiig's uh, character. So she's oh. the villain Thundercat. And the way that villain comes about is, you know, she wishes that she's as cool as um, Gal Gadot or the, the character Wonder, the, you know, 
her her Wonder Woman right. character. Wonder Woman. She wants yeah. to be that cool, and and that's even before she knows she's Wonder Woman. I just want to be cool like her. And uh, and Diana as, Prince. Yes, and as that uh, um, metamorphosis occurs, she's suddenly. Uh, able to wear heels confidently and wear a, a little black dress confidently. Like these are these are the accoutrement of of, of feminine right. femin- like, femininity. Like the end of Greece, like the end of Greece, where the very nice Olivia Newton-John character, who was you know sweet and beautiful. Um, the, the the answer for her is to put on a skin-tight leather bodysuit and uh, pick up a cigarette mm-hmm. and tease her hair. And, uh, you know, just look like every high school boy's, you know, trashy dream. Uh, and that's the, that's the secret to love and, uh, well, and resolving your secret. problems rather than him that, growing up a little. <laughs> that, that was the power, you know, like, so, so Wig's character starts out, her, her name is Minerva. Uh, her last name is Minerva. And uh, wink, the, wink. The, idea, the idea was she was a, she was a, a nerd and a geek and into archaeology and uh, uh, had big glasses and didn't do her hair and, the, and all of this sort of thing. She wishes to be cool, and, and, it, and that empowerment message had everything to do with how you look and your ability to attract men. Like that, is, that, that, that was the, the uh, alpha and omega of that. And so she be, you know, I mean, if, if I can say, yes, she became sexy and she became sadistic at the same time. That's what, same time. that's what the nice girl gets if she gets a taste of power. And how uh-huh. empowering is that for all the smart girls in the world is like, oh, you know, I'm brilliant and I'm kind and I just don't quite have that it factor. But, yeah, now I'm going to wear, you know, seven inch stilettos and I'll be hot and then I can be really mean to people. It's just like brutally. It was a really weird it was a really well, weird turn, and Kristen Wiig's another one I like so much. Uh, she's she was great on SNL, and she's been a lot of fun in some other movies that she's done. And to make her seem unsympathetic and kind of stupid, really. I mean, mm-hmm. she was, for for somebody who was like an advanced, you know, a, a academic, you know, and all of a sudden she she has some powers or whatever. Uh, she basically just got super strong, I guess. And and all of a sudden, all she wants to do is she becomes a complete nihilist. She's willing to do anything, hurt anyone to hold on to her power. And like you said, all of that is embodied in how sexy she looks in kind of a really, uh, you know, not super tasteful way either or anything, which mm-hmm. is, I, I don't want to wade into those waters. I'm a guy, but, um, but yeah, her, you know, what turned her life around was looking really hot and what that made her into was a monster. And I, I <laughs> doesn't seem doesn't yeah, seem it, super empowering. It, it, on, on the other side, Gal Gadot looks wonderful, and that means she's noble. I mean, what kind of weirdo mixed up message is that? Well, she's noble because of divine right of kings, right? You know, she's noble which, because yeah, which bugs she, me. She's, she's a, a, yeah, demigod. She's a demigod. She's explicitly a demigoddess, uh, and that's great. I thought that was kind of presented in an empowering way in the first movie. Uh, she had this fish out of water thing going, and she was like shocked and appalled at people being cruel to one another and wasn't having any of it. And she's got, you know, little lines like, you know, what, what you think, Mr. Doesn't determine what I'm going to do. I thought all that was great. And then this one, and then there's another subplot with her deceased boyfriend, Steve Trevor, which I won't go into because that might be spoilers. Um, but there's a real ethical problem 
there's a real ethical problem with what happens with her boyfriend uh, that she just completely ignores and is just left hanging. Uh, in other words, she gets something that she wants at someone else's expense and doesn't, the movie doesn't even react to it. It's like it didn't mm-hmm. even happen. Somebody mm-hmm. else's life is uh, harshly interfered with so that she can get what she wants romantically, and she doesn't even blink. It's not right. even suggested right. that that might be a problem. And that was really weird for me. Yeah, yeah. They they, they hijacked a person, essentially. Well, listen, thank I you gonna, for I calling gonna, in. Yeah. Okay. I, I wanted to to put out some thoughts about this, <laughs> this movie, because I mean, it, it's, it, it, and, and not in a, not in a divisive way. Like, you know, if you liked it, no. uh, you're, 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 you're dumb or anything. Uh, it, it's just, it, and, it, and there is a core theme, like the people who really like it are saying, well, the core theme that I came away with is that greed is bad. And, and what I, what I see is that they leveled up they, they, they equip, it, the false equivalency of um, yes. a populist need with greed. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and that I think that that's yeah. constructive. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, right. You're well, absolutely right. They, they made a perfect parallel between a Trump like figure and regular people who want better lives. That's the same thing as what this movie mm-hmm. says. Equally evil. Equally evil, equally bad, and 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 will have terrible, terrible consequences that that, that will <laughs> yeah, the, explode the planet. <laughs> again, the, the the mantra for the, for the Christmas movie is revoke your wish. Yep. that's their message yep. to you this Christmas season, to all of you out there who need a lot of things right now. Uh, revoke your wish. Don't do that. Smack your hand away from it. Uh, that's dangerous and irresponsible because you you don't even know what to wish for. Because you're you're dumb, uh, but I, exactly. I don't, you're right. There's no need to be divisive. I get that people like the character. I like the character. Just like you, I was appalled at the way they uh, framed it up in this movie. It was really offensively awful. And I got to say, there is an entertaining aspect to how bad it is. I I, I yeah. do think that that given a little bit of time, this is going to become <laughs> one of those movies that that people watch like Famous. Sharknado. <laughs> That you know that you watch it because it's bad, yeah. Well, it doesn't help that it's two and a half hours long. So, like you know, right when you think it's done being bad, they're like, "Oh no, wait for the denouement." We've got like lots. We've got like thirty minutes of more dumb stuff to pile onto this. Um, And I remember, um, you know, walking away kind of exhausted, like four fifths of the way through it, and then thinking, you know, I'm going to go back and sit through more of it. I guess because. If you're a movie watcher, you've got to finish, you know, but who? And know, speaking uh, of finishing. Right. Maybe it'll be. The, yeah. 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 I, <laughs> yeah, think I finished it. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for calling in. We are going to, uh, um, I'm going to bring up Rick Spizak here in a second for some top 2020 stories, but I just so appreciate you calling in and helping us you know, kind of work through some of the issues on that movie. And I really think your take is, um, is, uh, you know, nails it with the, with the wishes. So thank you so much, caller. And, uh, my pleasure. Love your show. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to, we're going to have Rick Spizak here in just a second. I'm going to bring him in and enjoy this until then. Okay. 
there wasn't much to enjoy. I've been putting new uh, music cues on my um, uh, touchpad here, and that was a very short one. Someone remember that that's a very short one. But we should have Rick Spizak on the on the line now. Rick, are you there? Hello. Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't have Rick. Going to mute him again. Rick, I can see you, and I can't hear you. Here's another one. Hello, Brooke. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Super duper. Well, how are you doing? The show is going great. I really love the issues that you've covered. Thank you so much. And you sent me a, a, and I always love your take on on the the news. And you sent me a, a list of top 2020 stories. I read through this and I was just like, oh my God, this is the, uh, the the planetary view that I that is so this is what Rick always does is he always brings this this planetary kind of consciousness view to things and so on here you have uh, fires in Australia in January and um, then the coronavirus you know like coronavirus kind of pushed that uh, those those terrible fires in Australia kind of pushed you, you that. Mean that- that democratic hoax thing, right? Oh, right, right. The 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 thing that's not a thing <laughs> until you get yes, it and die from it. Disappear and everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So so tell me what on this list, what on this, what what really jumps out at you? And I'll I'll okay. I'll I'll do the same. I'm going to say that the issue of human rights and human dignity uh, has been exacerbated by some of these, whether it be environmental challenges, the coronavirus challenge. I mean, from Black Lives Matter to citizenship in India to uh, law and order in uh, Hong Kong and uh, the Chinese grasp on human rights, um, the the Olympics being canceled uh, and all of that playing against this diabolical background where we mix the worst instincts of power mad politicians with this anti science uh, dreamy uh, uh, you know phantasma of wish wishes that. Um, you know, your your last guest mentioned wishes that should be unfulfilled. Boy, damn! You know, the wishes of these these power mad people definitely should not be fulfilled. And I, I do want to draw one really good story out. I I really think mm-hmm. in in the wash of Corona, this was lost about the the woman, uh, this the astronaut Catherine Sullivan who was the first woman to reach the deepest point in the ocean, Catherine Sullivan, first woman to complete a spacewalk, and she's the first woman to create the, to visit the deepest point in the ocean known as the Challenger Deep. You know, we've had a lot of virus science, 
but this is real exploration. This mm-hmm. is the stuff that sets imaginations wild. What an amazing thing to have happen, and how sad it was lost in in the in the madness that is this, you know, Corona foolishness. She. She went down to a depth of 35,853 feet, which is seven miles. Is that what? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's Basically, about seven miles. Down. Everest upside down. Wow. That's just insane. And so, this was part of yeah. the Ring of Fire expedition organized by adventure outfit EOS. I hope I'm saying that right. EOS mm-hmm. expeditions and undersea technology experts. Um, Caledon Oceanic. She was joined by pilot Victor Vescovo. Vescovo. I'm not pronouncing that right. Vescovo. Uh, this is this is really cool. It was 30 years ago that she did her spacewalk. So you know this is she she did a, it. She was an astronaut 30 years ago and then does this amazing exploration. You know later in life. You know this isn't. These aren't like you know. This isn't somebody who just got out of uh, being an astronaut and jumped into doing this. It's, you know, she's done a whole lot of other stuff before um, before this. I would like to know what they found out down there. Yeah, that would be very interesting. You know, one other story that I think really bears um, <laughs> notice uh when you when you stack up all the stupid, vile, evil things that Trump did, dragging American justice through 50-plus suits to try to do some damage to this election, you know, among his crimes, this, this is paramount. You don't mess with justice. You don't, you don't insult the American electorate. Uh, it, it just should not be done. And anyone displaying the least amount of leadership – has to understand that the trust that the citizens of this country must have in our systems, you destroy that peril. It can't be said enough. You know, you know, he was evil with children. He was evil selling out the environment. He was evil with so many things. He betrayed our allies. He embraced dictators, you know, offered the, the analysis that he could shoot someone in the street with impunity. You know, that kind of, should we say, front page banality of evil uh, is, is, mm-hmm. is monstrous. But, you know, destroying and attacking the judicial system, attacking our electoral system, that's a special crime, in my opinion. And we ill, we, we ill can afford to ignore those kind of issues in the months ahead. And I hope, although there's little evidence to hope, that Mr. Biden and his team are, are going to not do what Obama did. And let's look ahead because there are things that must be analyzed. There are things that must be adjudicated. And some of these attacks on our civilization, attacks on our Constitution, have to be attended to. Absolutely. Um, so – it, one of the things, I'm not sure if this is on there or not, but uh, 250 million people participated in a countrywide strike in India uh, yeah. starting in November, late in November. And this is yeah. one of these stories, the, the global stories, 
that uh, that gets lost, you know. Uh, yeah. It, it yeah. and 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 this one's so big. I think it's hard for us to wrap our brain around it because you know the the, the population of the United States is is what three hundred and thirty million. This this mm-hmm. would be almost <laughs> almost everybody in the country going on strike. Um, and uh, uh, the biggest strike organized in human history, over 250 million workers and farmers, along with their allies, students, feminists, civil, group, uh, civil society groups, uh, nationwide strike, uh, coincides with India's Constitution Day, which commemorates the adoption of the Constitution in 1949, and comes in the background of an unprecedented attack on workers' rights and farmers' protections by the right-wing government of Prime Minister uh, uh, Modi. This is what we need to see here. People have been talking about a general strike in the United States for quite some time, uh, having a you know, around COVID, around how people have been treated. Do you think, I mean, we've, we've seen some pretty successful strikes and we've seen some amazing uh, demonstrations, things I thought I would never see in my lifetime in the United States and, and things that we saw this year that I never thought we'd see in the United States. What do you think? Is it possible that we could get a, a strike that the United States could could that all of that could kind of come together for us? I wish I I wish I hoped there would could be. I, I'm afraid not. Uh, I think between the economic challenges that people have, you know, you have to have some economic flexibility to go protest. You have to have the assurity that there's a job waiting for you after the riot, after the protest. You have to have a degree of mobility to protest. Um, You know, those of us who protested against the war in Vietnam, we were college students, we were young people, we didn't have houses and homes and families and, and bills and all that stuff. We had the freedom, the latitude to do that. I'm afraid today with the between the terrible economic burden that we're all facing, whether it be student loans or just trying to make a living in this downward spiral of wages, and the fact that so many people are homeless and jobs are evaporating left and right, uh, the service industries are just decimated, you know, the restaurants and, and that whole community of people, that's all gone. A brick and mortar is, is you know, it was fading before. It's, it's just dropping away to nothing. And there's so many areas of where there's just no business anymore because people are afraid to get together, wisely so, and scientifically so. But unfortunately, I think that a mass rally, as much as I hate to say it, you know, and see, that's what worries me so very much, that we can't get together. We can't have a rally for the fear of COVID. And, I mean, what a perfect storm for the fascists to, to order their people out in the streets because they don't care. And as far as they're mm-hmm. concerned, all their troops are expendable. And, and they're, you know, chest-thumping proud with their AK-47s that, you know, they can just do whatever the hell they want. And evidently, law enforcement has no qualms about letting these people parade in the streets with loaded weapons. I don't understand how environmentalists are dangerous must be attacked with military equipment and sprayed in the face with industrial-grade wep- uh, chemical weapons. But these people with the firearms can invade a legislature, can, can threaten a governor, and they're, and they're seemingly impervious to any kind of uh, law enforcement. Yeah, 
Um, well, you know, we had the uh, we had the George Floyd protests uh, earlier this right. year, and right. um, and and that became a, a a bone of contention with regard to COVID because. We had mm-hmm. been telling, there, there, the, and rightfully, you know, you had a um, uh, social distance and wear a mask, and which it seemed like everybody was wearing masks. And it, and honestly, in the kinds of protests that happened after George Floyd, uh, mask wearing was to everybody's benefit because uh, you, you don't want to, you don't want to be identified on facial recognition. You don't want to, you know necessarily i i mean those 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 were darker protests they were they were more like uh you know people fighting for their lives but then that became part of this whole uh covid uh mask wearing situation i was really interested to see that after those protests were over we didn't have the spike in 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 covid that that you would expect and Part of that, uh, as people studied what was going on with that, it was uh, better appreciated that being outdoors is is pretty much it, it key to. I mean, if, if you're going to go talk to somebody, step outside because you're yeah. not yeah. you're not recirculating that virus inside a, 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 a HVAC system through the through the vents and uh yeah so that's um who knows who knows what's gonna what's gonna happen in 2021 one other story i wanted to mention and have us talk about just a little bit is the failed impeachment on the one hand it was a successful charge so and that's really what an impeachment is removal didn't happen removal didn't happen because of the block of republicans who are consciously still looking the other way at, at the illegal activity of Trump and his uh, minions. Um, this was a constitutional crisis. We, we stared a criminal. We investigated a criminal. Criminal activity was shown, was revealed, and the guy walks away scot-free. And that's a blot. That's a blot on our judicial system. Uh, you know, there are people who say, well, you know, once he's out of office, then just watch when things will happen. Well, you know, many of us are aware that Trump's misbehavior, Trump's abuse of funds, Trump's ripping off his clients, ripping off the people who work for him, has been a known commodity for decades. And if he hasn't been prosecuted yet by the state of New York or New Jersey or wherever, I have no hope that he's going to be prosecuted in the future. Uh, my only real hope is for karma, and I know karma will exact its own special toll. And no one's more unhappy with him than him. That's that's one other fact. Mm-hmm. But we failed. Well, you know, we failed to remove that man. Yeah. Well, I I, um, I, I remember back in uh, 2007, 2008, when uh, when there was a move, we, we wanted to impeach Bush for war crimes, and you know right. the, it, it wasn't even considered. And then the the people who um, um, perpetrated those those war crimes were never uh, they, they were never pursued in terms of any kind of criminal conduct or even right. administrative 
uh, kind of, you know, punishment or whatever. And so, you know, the thing that the, the thing about impeachment that I, that I found really interesting was they spent a few years. So he was, he was elected in 2016. Uh, pretty much as he was elected, this this Russia narrative started. But then, when he was finally impeached, or impeachment proceedings were were uh, carried out, uh, the focus wasn't on Russia. Then it was on Ukraine, and and one of the things that that has bothered me throughout is that I felt like Russia was. Russia was a, a a weak argument. Ukraine was a, re, a weak argument. If they had gone after corruption, if they'd just gone after the crime, the real financial crimes that are indisputable, they would have been able to do it. Uh, Alan Grayson wrote a whole book on the history of, of impeachment, and it's just gobsmacking how – you know, you can be impeached for crimes that you didn't do in office. You can, you can be impeached after you get out of office. There's been, you know, I read the book and now I can't remember, but it's, 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 you know, a few dozen different electeds in the United States have been impeached. And I don't understand why it just it became so hard, starting with George W. Bush uh, and then Trump. Why is it so hard for for to hold them accountable? Yeah, well, I suppose in part it's because of the good old boys club that one president doesn't want to harm another president for fear that retribution will, will fall on them. Uh, of course, it'd be nice if they just didn't do bad things. It had to be protected. But I think that's partly what it is. And it's not noblesse right. oblige when Obama looked the other way uh, of, you know, black sites and torture. And, and, of course, you know, he had his own drone patrol out there killing Americans even. So, you know, they they all want to be forgiven for their crimes. Uh, and, and they don't want to look backwards at the last guy. But this ill serves the American people, in my opinion. It ill serves us badly. Absolutely, and and it 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 furthers this 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 chasm between you know what I I feel like Americans are beginning to be serfs, you know, like 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 we're in, a, in yeah. like a era of feudalism, uh, neo feudalism, where where we're pretty much serfs. And everything that the ruling class or caste, whatever that caste decides, is is what uh, is basically the word of God. You know, that's that's just how it is. Well, you know, the illusion that there was equal justice under the law has been completely blown away. Mm-hmm. How could how could you talk to a young person and say, "Oh yes, we're all treated equally, except <laughs> if you're rich and you're white." You know, it's, it's real. It's, it's so brutally obvious. Yeah, and I, I saw a tweet the other day that just really stuck with me. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a huge person for like uh, for for guns or Second Amendment or anything. But the but the the point that the person was making is if 
if police are going to shoot you, just shoot you for having a gun or being thought to have a gun, if you're black, then you don't have a Second Amendment right to have a gun. And, you know, while, while I think that there's too many guns and so on and so forth, and we need to get rid of assault right, wife, weapons entirely, I feel like in in this environment where, you know, where I could totally understand how, why someone would want to carry a gun, especially, you know, a, a, a black man that is, you know, in the in this culture of violence, you want to be able to protect yourself and your family. And to be, if, if a cop comes upon you and you are thought to have a gun, they are going to shoot you. Just like the, the guy in the car that was caught on, on video. And I can't remember his name, but he worked at the school cafeteria. He was loved by all. Mm-hmm. And they just yeah. shot him in cold blood. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, well, you know, when are the second amendment guys going to, you know, kind of pick up on, on this, this, uh, uh, what's that? it's a paradox. It's a it's a, a, a conundrum, you know, because uh, sure it, it it's it, it's uh, black guys today, but I guarantee you that it's going to be everybody pretty soon. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. uh, w- when they said you know. If you're going to be killed for having a gun, then you don't have a right to carry a gun, period. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I not, not my thing. I'm, I am not into everybody having guns, but, but I totally get that. You know, like that kind of that kind of got, got through to me. I want to take a minute to say, Miss Brooke Hines, you are doing such a tremendous job with PNN. I have nurtured that baby for quite some time, and I am so proud of the work that you're doing. You're continuing the wonderful work of getting the voices of activists, getting voices out there, exploring topics that don't get shown, don't get discussed, don't get reviewed, talking to people whose voices aren't heard. And I just got to tell you, I am so totally impressed with the quality of the work that you're doing. You do PNN really proud. Oh, thank you. And I got to tell you, everything I do, I, I I feel like I owe it to PNN. I mean, I feel like it was such an honor to uh, to kind of step in and and do the show. And every week, it's it is top of my mind. You know, it's it's kind of it's part of the glue that holds everything together. That this is a this is a um, institution that has been around for almost 10 years. You know, we're getting there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it is, it, it, it deserves attention and it deserves your, your very best work. And so that's, that's what I try to bring to uh, things every week. Well, you're doing a marvelous job. Every time I listen to the show, it is just my little heart just skips a beat and Janine as well you two are just doing fantastic work and I just absolutely salute you both 
Well, thank you so much. It was so nice chatting with you. And uh, speaking of Janine, we got Janine on the line. There she okay. is. Janine. Well, listen, I'll say good night, Happy okay. New Year, and things that will get done in 2021. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye bye. Thanks, Rick. Bye bye. Hey, Janine. Hi. Hey, Brooke. Um, it was nice to hear Rick, and it was nice to hear those kind words. Um, I guess I'll just get started then. Uh, okay, tonight I'm going to talk about. To I'm sorry, what? I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. I am so excited about this. Uh, um, well, and I changed my topic kind of last minute because this spoke to me. And this is about how the idea of civility, in quotes, is used to silence communities of color, as well as uppity women, the LGBTQ community, basically anyone who challenges the cis white Christian male uh, dynamic that basically controls everything. And and especially since uh, President-elect Joe Biden has really mentioned civility and he, you know, he kind of bemoans the idea that there were the old days when we all got along. Well, I don't remember the same old days he does being basically an uppity woman who is part Hispanic and a Jew. I, I just don't. So, and a Ferguson activist. So here we go. These days we hear a lot about this idea of civility. And on the surface, civility itself sounds reasonable until you probe deeper and discover what civility masks namely systemic injustice. President-elect Biden likes to lecture about civility. Unfortunately, his rhetoric rings hollow because of his own privileged identity. Joe Biden is a cisgendered white Christian male. He's never felt the sting of being discriminated against, not because, and he's never felt it regardless of his behavior. Now, those of us that have felt the sting of discrimination have felt it not because of our behavior, but because of our identity. In short, Joe Biden, I'll just call him Joe. Joe just doesn't get it. But like far too many white men, including any well-intentioned ones, he assumes that he knows more about the subject than those who are forced to deal with such injustice on a daily basis. Joe Biden wants a peaceful transition, but there can never be any peace without justice. Such a dubious piece is merely an empty promise. So rather than lecture communities of color and other minorities about civility, good old Joe needs to listen to our reality, the reality of communities of color, religious minorities, the LGBTQ community, and women from all groups. He should not assume that he understands, as such an assumption is not only deeply insulting, it furthers the use of civility, as a tool to silence many truths that white men do not want to face. It's time for Joe Biden and other moderates to deal with their own white fragility and face the truth about this nation and the role civility takes to cudgel minorities into submission and silence. So if you're listening out there, Joe, may I call you Joe? Here is a small lesson from multiple sources on civility. From National Public Radio, the Code Switch Program, Uh, it's what they call the Civility Wars. The title is When Civility is Used as a Cudgel Against People of Color, and it's from March of 2019. 
It was heard on All Things Considered and written by Karen Grigsby Bates. So they talk about the fact that the value of civility is something that a lot of Americans agree on, at least white Christians anyway, but it's an assumption that we need to reexamine. When the false promise of civility, what it means to people of color especially, because let's be honest here, of all minority groups, there are two groups that basically cannot escape or pass, and that's communities of color and women, because our identity is inextricably linked to our physical appearance. If you are a white man, whether you're gay, bi, trans, um, whether you're religious or not religious, whatever, if you keep your mouth shut, you can pass. But communities of color cannot, and neither can women. So the false promise of civility. According to this writer, um, Karen Bates, that is, Quote, for many people of color in the United States, civility isn't so much social lubricant as it is a vehicle for containing them, preventing social mobility and preserving the status quo, end quote, quote. And I agree with that. And so she talks about during the age of civil rights, there was this forcible pushback from whites against black protesters that wanted to be able to sit at a lunch counter, wanted to be treated with dignity. So you you basically heard then Alabama Governor George Wallace proclaim, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And that is part and parcel of what civility masks. Even after the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act were passed, there were still plenty of whites that used the idea of civility as an excuse to disguise racism as well as misogyny. Uh, there was a quote here, James Foreman, who was a principal organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, promised that they, he basically promised that people that wanted to go slow on integration um, basically said that, you know, he, he said basically that if blacks didn't have a seat at democracy's table soon, the entire table would be tossed. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, he went on to say, Oh, activist H. Rap Brown told um, black Americans that, you know, since the laws were never meant to include them as equal partners, they could ignore them. To quote him, he said, quote, we did not make the laws in this country. We are neither morally or legally confined to those laws. Those laws that that keep them up keep us down, end quote. So that's part of it. Now we have this idea that a lot of white Christians have of a God-ordained right to civilize other groups of people, as if people of color and religious minorities are inherently uncivilized. That's the, that's the implication. But it's not true. And basically, Professor Gay Teresa Johnson at the University of California, Los Angeles, studies the intersection of civility and race, um, covered this, and basically talked about how civility is used as part of an underlying rationale for not only the enslavement of blacks, but also the Jim Crow they followed. And to quote her, she said, quote, people of color don't get to orchestrate the terms of civility. Instead, we're always responding to what civility is supposed to be, end quote. And again, that's that arrogance that white Christians are gifting those of us who are deemed not 
white enough or Christian enough with the gift of civility because apparently we couldn't possibly figure it out on our own. This is sarcasm on my part, obviously. So the civility wars went on in this article. Uh, Rutgers professor Brittany Cooper wrote about the white reaction to black anger in a book she wrote titled Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. And Professor Cooper basically said that since the Black Lives Matter movement has really gained steam, um, that the idea that blacks are protesting really um, affects how whites perceive them. Um, To quote Professor Cooper, quote, black anger, black rage, black distress over injustice is seen as one, unreasonable and outside outsized, and two, as a thing that must be neutralized and contained quickly, end quote. And Cooper went on to say that 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 neutralization process usually takes the form of whites, quote, preaching at black people about how they're bad and how they're ungrateful for being angry, end quote. And this does not escape alleged liberals. Bill Clinton is a good example. When he was campaigning for Hillary in 2016, he talked about the criminal justice system and how it's evolved. And his, his talk was challenged by Black Lives Matter activists. And to quote Bill Clinton, quote, I listen to them, and they don't want to listen to me. And then he turned around to face the Black Lives Matter challengers, and he shook his finger at them, which in the black community, well, in a lot of communities, is seen as a, a really horrible form of disrespect. You wag your finger at a little toddler, not at grown people. And then he wagged his finger and to quote Bill Clinton again, quote, you will never learn anything when you're talking, end quote. He was basically telling them that they were being uncivil and to shut up. Often incivility is needed, however, according to many activists, to shock society into doing the right thing. And that goes across all barriers. Even you know in the LGBTQ community, AIDS activists formed ACT UP, and they aggressively protest. Uh, they demanded research and services, and they really infuriated a lot of liberals because these protesters were not being civil. Well, to quote once again a writer for the Washington Post named Stephen Petro. Um, Quote, people were dying. The FDA was doing nothing. The Reagan White House had said nothing about AIDS well into the president's second term. So, yes, that urgency justified that type of action, end quote. Similar sense of urgency that triggered incivility, if you will, happened with the DACA protesters, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, the Dreamers as we know them. Because, again, here we all witness babies being put into cages, being separated from their parents, being basically terrorized by our government in a way that white babies never would have been. Once again, no, civility is not what's needed and we needed to draw attention to it. The idea that Colin Kaepernick of the 49ers decided to kneel on one knee during the national anthem was needed. And he chose to kneel And according to Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy, he made a lot of white, a lot of whites furious, but Kennedy went on to say, Professor Kennedy, quote, the idea that these athletes were addressing themselves to a burning political issue, that in and of itself made people mad. 
But Kennedy also added, quote, by kneeling silently, Kaepernick was acting in the same dignified way civil rights demonstrators did in the 1960s. Kennedy, Kaepernick, according to Kennedy, quote, was very vulnerable, and despite his vulnerability, he stood up in kneeling down. And I think in history, he will go down as a hero, end quote. There are lots of heroes in civil disobedience. Let's look at the term civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, by its very nature and necessity, is incivil. Now, CNN ran a piece by Harmi Kaur in 2018 titled How a Lack of Civility Helped Propel the Civil Rights Movement. And once again, he talked about how demonstrators during the, the Trump administration shouted down former Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen when she was trying to eat at a Mexican restaurant. How other protesters rallied outside the apartment building where Stephen Miller lived. And how a Virginia restaurant owner requested that Sarah Huckabee Sanders leave because of her role in Trump's administration. Representative Maxine Waters, who I adore, urged people to publicly confront Trump officials. Representative John Lewis tweeted that people shouldn't be afraid to, quote, make some noise and get in good trouble, end quote. And this is very, very true. We have to have this because if civility got the job done, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. But we can't allow civility to not only mask injustice, we cannot allow civility to basically, we can't afford to sacrifice justice on the altar of civility. And that's more often than not what happens. So Martin Luther King Jr. you know, was arrested, the Birmingham campaign, 1963, he was considered radical, incivil. I mean, we've watered King down in recent years. This is why when I taught in a, a black school district, when we had Dr. When we had King Day and the kids heard, I have a dream till the cows come home, they rolled their eyes because this was the Disney-fied version of King, not the full truth about King, who was far more complex. When King had these mass demonstrations, local fellow religious leaders called this unwise and untimely. And this was as reported in the King Institute at Stanford University. So the criticism made King pen the famous letter from a Birmingham jail. King denounced the idea that people that have been denied their rights, their freedoms, their dignity should be patient. And he wrote how disappointed he was with, quote, the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. And I'm sorry, but somewhere out there, good old Joe, I'm afraid you fall in that category. King went on, King wrote also, quote, actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive, end quote. So today's civility debate, <coughs> excuse me, William Chafe, who's a history professor at Duke, authored a book called Civility and Civil Rights, Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Black Struggle for Freedom. And Professor Chase said that these recent calls for people to be more civil really, really just shows how whites don't understand the history of civility. To quote Professor Chase, for the most part, civility has been used as a vehicle 
for not changing things, end quote. Chase went on to say, quote, I think it's important to keep our eye on what the issues really are. And while recognizing that certain actions are inappropriate, recognizing that above all, you don't change things without making demands, end quote. <clears throat> Claiborne Carson, who's a history professor at Stanford, was quoted as saying about civility, excuse me, <clears throat> quote, does the urgency justify a certain level of disruption and disrupting other people's lives. He went on to say, I think that most people who engage in civil disobedience do think through those, those issues. Carson was also talking about uh, basically the press secretary's private dinner. Um, he wanted to say, quote, with protest, you're always making a judgment about what is appropriate given what is at stake. I can understand how people are not going to be overly concerned about decorum and how disruptive they are when part of the point is to be disruptive, end quote, and that's from CNN. So, again, the lack of civility in the Trump era should not be surprised. Um, this another article by CNN, an analysis by Z. Byron Wolf. And Wolf um, basically on to... Honestly, he quotes, excuse me, he quotes Maxine Waters and how she encouraged people to make life difficult for these privileged people in the administration. To quote Maxine Waters, quote, let's make sure we show up wherever, they have, wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore anywhere. We've got to get the children connected to their parents, end quote. Ironically, noted alleged liberal Nancy Pelosi found Maxine Waters' statement, quote, unacceptable. But I don't expect much from Nancy because she's never felt personally the sting of racism or poverty. In fact, Nancy needs to learn some humility and some compassion. She is exactly the kind of moderate that Dr. King viewed with disdain. So then we have the hypocrisy and arrogance of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She went on after that, uh, after that restaurant incident, and she went on to say, quote, healthy debate on ideas and political philosophy is important, but the calls for harassment and push for any Trump supporter to avoid the public is unacceptable. America is a great country, and our ability to find solutions despite those disagreements is what makes us unique, end quote. Well, if that were the case, we wouldn't, blacks wouldn't have had to suffer through slavery. They wouldn't have had to suffer through the injustice of Dred Scott. They wouldn't have had to suffer through Jim Crow and on through the Trump era. So, again, you have to decide in your mind what is more important, civility or actual justice. We go on, and there's more. We ha I found this one website. It's now defunct, and it's called The Establishment, and I love it. Um, it ran from 2015 to 2019, and they champion, according to their site, the voices and story, quote, of those marginalized by mainstream media. I love it. This one was written by Tariq Musa, and it's titled, White People, It's Time to Prioritize Justice Over Civility. And he talks about, again, how white moderates, and you could put liberals in that same category, cover, quote, for deadly white supremacy as they strive to be civil. My, sorry, my phone's ringing. I'll ignore it. Um, and once again, white supremacists, he went on to say, routinely land profiles in leading media sites. 
They get invited onto popular shows, uh, as reported by CNN. And, you know, once again, this is something that needs to stop. And then he talked about what I call the false equivalence argument. And he went on to say, quote, I'm concerned about those white people who think profiling Nazis amounts to hearing both sides, as if racist ideas are taking place in some kind of agora instead of a battlefield where we must regularly dodge hatred, end quote. And I agree with him totally. This is, and he went on to say, quote, it's the epitome of white privilege to be able to encounter racism and consider calmly listening to what this nicely dressed man thinks about segregation and integration, black on black crime, and so forth, end quote. And I agree with him. I, I wish I had written this. I couldn't have written any better. Um, they go on about the idea, not just of white supremacists, but of Nazis. And you really can't separate the two. The Nazi movement under Hitler was all about racism. You know, Jews were their big target because, in large part because Jews were not regarded as fully white. We were considered a mud race. So, and, and again, this is just historic truth. And you can't talk about the false, the false equivalence argument has to end. You know, they use it, a lot of times false equivalency will be dressed up in the idea of balance, fair and balanced reporting. It's garbage, okay? That's why it's a false equivalence. Um, you can't compare what somebody like Nancy Pelosi goes through on a daily basis or neo-Nazi Richard Spencer to what my friends in Ferguson go through, to what Reverend Gray goes through, to what uh, newly elected Congresswoman Cori Bush has gone through, St. Louis own. We have to shout down Nazis. We absolutely have to, and, and we cannot put them in the same category. And just th these Nazis, they have they groomed themselves, they made them look like they're reasonable, but they're, you, have to call, you have to call them for what they are. They're not clowns, according to this writer. In fact, when you call white supremacists or neo-Nazis clowns or crusader or trolls, you're basically whitewashing the truth. These are very dangerous people. They are proponents of an ide ideology that is so racist, they want to see a genocide or enslavement or both of all people that are not considered fully white or Christian, okay? Going back to Dr. King that this writer talked about, letter from a Birmingham jail. Dr. King said, quote, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in a stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, <coughs> but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, end quote. A lot of truth there. <coughs> and this writer, he is originally from South Africa, and he describes how the apartheid regime, regime was totally legal. You know, it was written in South Africa's laws. We can't confuse what is legal with what represents justice, because the two aren't always equivalent. <laughs> so, maintaining law and order in South Africa, or here in the South, or in Harlem, is basically, to a lot of whites, maintaining segregation. 
And in more polite company, they just say, well, you know, if they earn enough money, they can live in this neighborhood, which is hogwash. Dr. King was quoted again by this writer from the establishment, quote, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exists for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when law and order fail in this purpose, they have become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress, end quote. Good old Joe, I hope you can hear me somewhere. Again, this writer, uh, Tariq, um, he basically reminded the readers that opposing apartheid in South Africa, when apartheid was still part of their legal um, code, was illegal. People had to be disruptive in order to get their rights. We have to stop treating white supremacy like it's normal. We have to stop stop allowing white moderates and liberals that don't have a spine to push this false equivalence. It won't work. And that's another thing. There can't be any peace without justice. And unfortunately, white moderates and some liberals, again, good old Joe, they prioritize. They seem to be prioritizing justice. I'm sorry. They seem to be prioritizing civility above justice. And we have to call it for what it is. Now I'm getting close to the end of my time, so I'll just skip ahead here. Once again, in conclusion, Dr. King has been honored by a national holiday. Unfortunately, it's become a holiday that commemorates the Disney version of King, the version that white moderates and liberals feel most comfortable with. You know, the I have a dream version, stripped of any radical demands such as, I don't know, equal justice for all, both politically and economically. Dr. King was planning a poor people's march for everybody. We're talking about equal, just, equal political justice and equal economic justice. That means accountability and transparency. Subsequently, the king that white moderates and or centrist love has been stripped of his black identity, of its history. I feel that both the GOP and Joe Biden prefer this version of King, as well as Nancy Pelosi, as it never challenges the money powers that be. That version of King virtually reeks of civility as opposed to actual justice. That is not the true King. Here are two quotes that show the true King. One is, on again, letter from the Birmingham jail. And this is something you won't find on Martin Luther King Day. And this, that was the same quote about the white moderate being the biggest enemy who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of, of justice. But another quote, again, from the same letter from a Birmingham jail, <coughs> Quote, it is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent, intolerable conditions that exist in our society. <coughs> These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it 
America has failed to hear. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice and humanity. So I end this with Joe. When you lecture us about civility, you ignore what is not only needed, but required, equal justice. And that's my report. <coughs> wow. That's my report. That was, that was amazing. Thank you so much. The And, you know, I just thought of so many things while you were talking about civility and how, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me that living in a democracy is is about people having fierce disagreements, and what we have to do right. is make sure that every that no one is disenfranchised. And mm-hmm. it, so often, the idea of civility is applied towards moving people out of the discourse, just removing them from the discourse. Yeah. And that's exactly that's it. A lot of our problems arrive on either side. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the unheard um, uh, of one group and the un, uh, become aggressive to the unheard of another group when really right. the people who are keeping them both down are the ones at the top saying, uh, be nice, just be nice while disenfranchising. They're, effect- they're effectively saying you don't have a right to self-defense. Yeah, right. That's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, and and <clears throat> every minority has heard it. If whether you're a person of color, women have heard it. Um, if you're a religious minority, you know, and sometimes it sounds more benign. Like, well, you always talk about this. Why do you always talk about? It? Why don't you let it go? Because things haven't been fixed yet. That's right. And that's, that's right. what it's about. Well, so, thank you so much, Jenny. Yeah, that was that was right on. That was right on. Good stuff. Um, and I think I think you've inspired me to uh, do some do some work of my own on civility. Well, thank you so much. And um, we only have like thirty seconds left, and so I want to tell everybody thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening to the end. And we will see you guys again in the new year next week. Cool. See you next year. All right. All right. See you guys. Tune in next week. Bye-bye.